All right, well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and find your way to Genesis chapter 14. Can we just thank our choir and orchestra and worship team for leading us so well uh, this morning? I'm so thankful uh, for the great job they do week in and week out of just pointing us to Christ, right, and lifting our eyes off of ourselves and our circumstances and just pointing us towards Jesus. My heart needs that uh, each and every single week, and so I'm so grateful for them. Uh, Someone has said, don't ever trust a theologian who doesn't sing. And I think that's uh, so true, right? Because if you really think about God rightly, then you are going to erupt in in praise. Our theology should always lead to doxology. Our our doctrine always should bring us to the point of devotion. When you really think about God biblically, then how can you not help but lift your voice and sing? Amen? So I'm grateful for a a wonderful worship ministry that helps us to do that uh, each and every week. Well, hopefully uh, you're in Genesis chapter 14. I want you to consider a question this morning, and, and it's a very important question for each and every one of us. How can you ignore the seductions that this world has to offer? How can you say no to the enticing temptations of this day and time? I mean, all around us, each and every day, are opportunities to choose the enticements that the world has to offer to us, to to make small or large compromises, to believe the lies of our culture, to choose comfort and pleasure over faithfulness and devotion. What will give you the boldness to say no to this world so that you can say a greater yes to Jesus? I would suggest this morning that the only way to ignore the seductions of this world is to first be deeply satisfied in God. When you are first deeply satisfied with God, then you can ignore the temptations of this world. Here's what I mean. You may have noticed um, after this period of holiday eating that we've had, that we've just come out of Thanksgiving and Christmas and and New Year's and uh, any other holiday we can think of in January to, to try to stuff our faces. But think about Thanksgiving. I don't know about you, but Thanksgiving lunch is probably the biggest meal I eat all year long. And uh, I love dessert. Can I get a witness? Anybody else a a dessert fan? I love all the desserts. But after Thanksgiving lunch, I lose my taste for dessert for a little while because I've been so stuffed and so satisfied with a massive turkey or ham and stuffing, all the the fixins, as we say here, that now at about two o'clock in the afternoon on Thanksgiving day, if somebody comes and brings me a piece of pecan pie, it just looks gross because you're so full, right? What might have been very enticing to you just an hour or two earlier, now you look at it and you're like, well, that does not look good because I'm, I can't have any more, right? You've been so deeply satisfied that what might have been enticing to you before no longer holds sway. It's no longer tempting to you. And it, it's the same exact way in our walk with God. When you are fully satisfied with God, then the, the seductions of this world don't tempt like they used to. That's why John Piper says that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When you find God supremely satisfying, then you can ignore the seductions of the world. Now, we're in Genesis chapter 14 this morning. We're going to see towards the end of this chapter that Abram is going to be offered something enticing. 
He, he is going to be given a seductive temptation. This amounts to a third test of Abram's trust in the matter of three chapters. Genesis chapter 12, test number one comes, and you know he fails that test. He's, he's offered something by Pharaoh. He gives in. He lives with a lack of integrity. He fails the test. But then he repents, which is what we should do when we fail a test. When we act faithlessly, we should come back to the Lord. That's exactly what Abram does at the beginning of chapter 13. He builds an altar. He worships the Lord. He comes back to Bethel, back to that place of God-centeredness. And that fundamentally changes Abram's, from Abram's life. Not that he won't fail in the future, but now he has come to find something very satisfying in God so that when he faces another test in chapter 13, he's able to pass with flying colors. Now you come to Genesis chapter 14 and you have, yet again, one more test where something is offered to Abram where he has a choice to make. Am I going to follow God or am I going to serve myself? But he has experienced God in such a way. He's come to find God so satisfying in his life that he's able to, to face this test in a different way. Now Genesis chapter 14 is the story of a battle that Abram is drawn into and has to fight. He goes to war, he fights a battle. Most of the chapter is a battle report. But the purpose of that battle report is to set up what happens afterwards, which is two kings come to, to Abram with two offers. And one of those offers is a seductive enticement. We're gonna see how Abram responds to that. But I wanna just kind of give you a summary of the chapter because Genesis chapter 14 is one of the hardest chapters to read because it's full of names of people and places, okay? So I've been practicing this morning. I'm going to do my very best. But if you're just listening to it, it's kind of easy to get lost a little bit in some of those names, a little lost in the weeds. So I want to just kind of give you a big 30,000-foot overview of the chapter so you can kind of understand what's going on and follow the, follow the story, okay? The story begins with a rebellion. It's a rebellion against a Mesopotamian king by the name of Cador Laomer, okay? Say that five times fast. Cater Laomer is a king in the north, and he has been taking tribute money from kings in the south, down in Canaan. You can see Mesopotamia up in the northeast. That's where Cater Laomer lives in uh, what is uh, the, the area of modern-day Iran. That's where Cater Laomer is from. But he's been taking tribute money from some Canaanite kings. Uh, uh, southern Canaan had a number of natural resources that he's been taking for 12 years a, a number of city-states down in Canaan had been giving Cater Laomer money, but they get tired of that. And so in year number 13, they, uh, they stage a rebellion. They stop sending protection money to Cater Laomer. Cater Laomer, I've got to figure out an abbreviation for his name. Uh, he gets very mad about this. And so what happens is he retaliates to this rebellion. He gets a group of, of other kings from the north a coalition of four kings total. And they travel all the way from Mesopotamia down to Canaan in the 14th year to collect what they feel like is their due. And they do that successfully. And they absolutely destroy everybody in their path, all of the kings that come up against them. Uh, the Mesopotamian kings just wipe them out to the point that a, a last battle happens. A, a coalition of five kings of the south come together, meet the kings of the north on the battlefield. The kings of the north just run them right over and destroy all of them. And in the process, one of the, the city-states that destroys Sodom, 
You remember from Genesis chapter 13, who moved near Sodom? Lot. Lot has moved near Sodom. And now that the Mesopotamian kings have destroyed that kingdom, they take a bunch of people captive, including Lot, which draws Abram into the story. And so what you see is a daring rescue mission. Abram gathers up some of the people from his uh, tribe, and they go and take Lot back, and they destroy the Mesopotamian kings in the process. Then as they come back victorious, two kings come to Abram and bring something to offer him. One brings a blessing. The other brings a temptation. And we're, that's really the whole, that's, it's the climax of the chapter is this temptation offered to Abram by a worldly king. And we're going to see how Abram responds to that. Okay, so that's Genesis chapter 14. That's kind of the whole story. But here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that Abram experiences something here. So satisfying, so satisfying in God that it enables him to display his trust in God in the face of a seductive temptation. So that's the story. So I want us to just read through the text. I want you to see what Abram experiences that enables him to say no to this world because he already knew what he had in God. He experiences two things, all right? And we'll see if we can get to both of them. He experiences victory from God and he experiences blessing from God. He experiences victory from God and he experiences blessing from God. And he's so deeply satisfied in that he can say no to this world. So here's the first thing I want you to see. I want you to see a victory from God that Abram experiences. That's what verses 1 through 16 are all about. So we see the story of a battle, a battle fought and won. In verses 1 through 16, let's look at it together. First of all, you see the rebellion, okay? So this is the, the rebellion of the southern kings against the northern kings. It says in verse 1, in those days, King Amraphel of Shinar, King Arioch of Elisar, King Caterleomer of Elam, and King Tidal of Goim, that's verse 1. These kings, four kings from the north, waged war against King Barah of Sodom, King Bersha of Gomorrah, King Shinab of Adma, and King Shemaber of Zeboim, as well as the king of Bela, that is Zoar. That's verse two. All right, so this is five southern kings. Thank you very much. Aren't you glad you don't have to read this out loud this morning? This is a, this is a lot. So this is what the verse two verses say. Four kings from the north come against five kings of the south. Verse three, all of these came as allies to the Sidim Valley, which is in the Dead Sea. It's the southern part of Canaan. And they were subject to Cater Laomer for 12 years. See that? But in the 13th year, they rebelled. Okay, so this tells you what I just told you. Cater Laomer rules over these Canaanite city-states. They've been giving tribute money. Uh, some people say that it was probably asphalt or tar, which we're going to find out uh, is, is natural resource in that region. They've been sending all of this stuff up to Mesopotamia. But now, after 12 years of this business, they decide enough is enough. We don't want to have to keep giving up our natural resources to these kings in the north. We're rebelling. Well, in verses 5 through 12, we see the retaliation. Okay, now these four uh, Mesopotamian kings are going to come down to the south and they are going to get theirs. Now, I want you to picture here the mafia, okay? Just think about your favorite mafia movie. You know, you've got local neighborhood business owners, and they pay protection money to the mafia, right? Because the, the mafia promises to protect them as long as they'll sort of give them their due. But 
But the, the local grocer down the street decides he's tired of paying the money. So what does the mob do? They send enforcers, right? Lou, Lou or whatever, you know, <laughs> Louie, to come get the money. Well, that's basically what's happening in this story. These southern Canaanite kings rebel. Cater Laomer gets a gang of thugs, a coalition of four kings, and they come down to the south. And the original Hebrew says they open up a can on the kings of the south. Okay, that's what happens. They come and fight them. Just so you're aware of where these northern kings are from, Cater Laomer is from what is modern-day Iran. Okay, uh, Amraphel is from Babylon, that's in modern-day Iraq. Arioch and Tidal are from areas in modern Turkey. Okay, so just picture this kind of alliance from what is now modern-day Iran, Iraq, and Turkey coming down from Mesopotamia to get their, get their money. So let's look at verses, verses 5 through 7. In verse 5, in the 14th year, Cater Laomer and the kings who were with him came and they defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shaveh Kiriathayim, and the Horites in the mountains of Seir, as well as El Paran by the wilderness. And then they came back to invade in Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they defeated the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who lived in Hazazon Tamar. All right. So what's happening here? What do we do with all this? Well, let me just show you a map that will help you, I think, visualize what's going on, all right? This is a map of Canaan. You see the red arrows that are coming down to the right side of the map. This is the route that these Mesopotamian kings take. And what they do is that they just are conquering tribes as they go. Uh, they are plundering and pillaging and absolutely destroying every tribe in their way. Now, we're told about some of those tribes in this text, the Rephaim, the Zuzim, and the Emim. I know you're all scholars on those tribes, right? I'm not, so I had to look it up, okay? But these are, these are tribes that are described in the book of Deuteronomy as being very tall, okay? The Rephaim were known as giants, kind of like Goliath later in the story. So as these northern kings become to come down in the south, the very first tribes that they destroy are the strongest people of the land, the Rephaim and the Zuzim and the Emim, tall warrior tribesmen, giants. That's the first battle. And what does it say the northern kings do? They just wipe them out as if they're little ants. Now, can you imagine being the next tribe up? You've just sent the Rephaim giants in the land to come against this coalition of four armies, and they just plow right through them and destroy them as if they're not even standing in their way, and now here they're coming to your town. And that's what they do. They begin to make their way down south. They go up into the mountains. They destroy the mountain tribes, and they go all the way down to the bottom. You see El Paran. They destroy those tribes. And then the text says they start to come back. So they've sort of torn through, plundering, pillaging every tribe on their way down. Then they begin to turn back north to come up to Kadesh Barnea and then back towards the Dead Sea, the southern part of the Dead Sea, Sidim Valley is what we're told, the King's Valley, which, there, which is where there is a, a kind of last effort to stop these northern kings. A coalition of five city-states, including Sodom and Gomorrah and Zoar, 
gather onto the battlefield to try to finally stop this Mesopotamian force. Let's read verses 8 through 11. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and lined up for battle in the Sidim Valley against King Caterleomer of Elam and so forth. Verse 10. Now the Sidim Valley contained many asphalt pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, but the rest fled to the mountains. So what's happening here? This coalition of five southern kings is still no obstacle for these northern four. The northern four have wiped through every tribe on their way down. They begin to make their way back up. Now a coalition of five kings gather on the battlefield to meet them, five against four, and the four kings wipe right through them to the point that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah begin to run. Some of them fall into pits. Some of them flee into the mountains. I mean, they are totally wiped out here. And verse uh, 11 says, the four kings take all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and they went on. They kept going. Now, a twist enters the story in verse 12, and this is where, this is why this story is in our Bible, okay? Because this is verse 12. Verse 12 says, they also took Abram's nephew, Lot, and his possessions, for he was what? Living in Sodom, and they went on. So you'll remember in chapter 13, Lot had moved near Sodom. You remember that? He, he chooses land that's near Sodom. He pitched his tent near Sodom. But now you find there's been a little progression between chapter 13 and chapter 14. Now not only is he close to Sodom, he's decided to move right into the heart of Vegas. He has bought a flat on Bourbon Street. Not just near. He's moved into town. He is in Sodom. And because the king of Sodom is involved in this conflict and the northern kings destroy Sodom, and take all those captives, guess who gets taken captive? Lot. Why is this story in your Bible? Because Lot is taken in the battle as a prisoner of war. Lot's uncle, Abram, gets drawn into the fight. Abram wakes up, realizes that these northern kings have taken his nephew captive. He gathers all of his men, 318 of them, and he stages a daring rescue. And that's what we see happens next. Beginning in verse 13, we see a rescue. One of the survivors, verse 13, came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who lived near the oaks, belonging to Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol, and the brother of Aner. Now, they were bound by a treaty with Abram. So when Abram heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men, born in his household. They gather up a little posse, they get on their horses and they chase after the bad guys and pursue them as far as Dan. Now, you know where Dan is. It's in the northern part of Canaan. Where was the battle with these five kings? So south, southern Canaan, right? Abram gets his little posse of 318 men and he begins to chase these northern kingdoms from the southern part of Canaan to the northern part of Canaan, the very top part of the land. And then he stages a surprise attack under the cover of darkness. Look at what happens in verse 15. He and his servants deployed against them by night and defeated them. 
This is the first time these four northern kings have had a loss in this entire military campaign. And then he pursued them as far as Hobah, in case you're wondering where Hobah is, he tells us, to the north of Damascus. Where is Damascus? Syria. So picture in your mind Abram with his little posse on horseback chase after these northern kings, drive them from the southern part of the land to the northern part of the land, stage a surprise attack at night, totally defeat them, and then drive them out of the land. Most of you don't even have Damascus in your Bible maps. It's that far north. And then, verse 16, he brings back all the goods and also his relative lot and his goods, as well as the women and the other people. A daring rescue. All right, what do we do with this? Well, there are a few things that strike me about this part of the story. The first thing is I think this is a picture of amazing grace in Abram's actions. Because if you think about it, Abram did not have to get involved in this fight. This was not his fight. These northern kings come down, they destroy all these tribes in the land, and they come back up and destroy this coalition of five kings. They win, they're moving out. And Lot is with them. He's a POW, he's a captive. And if you're Abram, you could look at this like Lot is getting what Lot deserves. Right? Because if you think about it, chapter 14 is really a result of chapter 13. Chapter 13 is Lot's foolish choice of the land, and he moves into Sodom. Not just near, now he's fully assimilated himself with this wicked city. This is Lot's dumb mistake. And it'd be very easy for Abram to look at Lot and understand he's experiencing the consequences of his own dumb choices and say, good riddance, he's getting what he deserves. He's getting his just desserts. If Lot had only been as righteous as I was, if Lot had chosen better, if Lot had not made this foolish mistake, he wouldn't be in this predicament. It would have been very easy for Abram to let Lot go and experience his just desserts. You know, there, there are very few words that are more precious than to be able to say, I told you so. We love those words, don't we? Abram could have said that to Lot. You were the fool. You made this mess. If you'd only listened to my advice, you wouldn't be here. You ought to experience a little bit of the pain of your own choices. Maybe you'll learn a lesson or two. This is what you deserve. But that's not what, Lot, what Abram does, is it? No. No, instead, Abram chooses to make a fight his fight, to make someone else's burden his burden to make Lot's problem his problem. He, he decides at great personal risk to himself to put it all on the line, gather a posse to go and rescue and bring back the prodigal. A young nephew who's made dumb choices and now finds himself in the pig pen. And Abram says, I'm going to take everything that is mine, and I'm going to put it on the line to go bring him home. Folks, I think that Abram is displaying the heart of God in this story. Right? This, this, is a, this is a picture. Abram chasing after a prodigal who has made foolish, sinful, selfish choices, now experiencing the consequences of those choices. 
Abram could have let him go, could have let him experience the, the harm and woundedness and pain that would have come from those selfish choices, but instead Abram says, I love my nephew so much, I will risk it all to go bring him back home. Folks, isn't that a picture of the redemptive rescue that God brings? God could have left you, he could have left me to experience the consequences of our foolish, sinful, selfish choices and, and to experience the consequences of our choices, but instead at great risk to himself, God loves you so much he sent Jesus on a rescue mission to rescue the prodigal from the, pro from the consequence of your choice and my sinful choice and to bring us back home. That's the heart of Abram here. It's displaying the heart of God. It's amazing grace, isn't it? Amazing patience, amazing long-suffering with Lot to say, I love you so much, I will chase you down and bring you back. Folks, that is what God does with us. When we are running from him, when we are far from him, when our heart doesn't reflect his heart, when we choose sinfully and selfishly and foolishly, God says, I love you too much to let you go without a fight. I am going to pursue you. I'm going to chase you down. I'm going to try to rescue you so I can bring you back home. Amazing grace. Also amazing courage. I mean, you think about what this took for Abram to take I mean, can you imagine coming up against these northern kings? These guys have destroyed everybody in their path. They destroyed the Rephaim, the giants of the land. They've destroyed a coalition of five southern Canaanite armies. I mean, no one has been able to stop them. And Abram takes his little group, 318 trained men. Now, these are not warriors. These are not like the Navy SEALs. Abram is a pilgrim, a stranger in the land. He... He has farmers. They're not an elite force. They're not an overwhelming force. They are a small band of Hebrew farmers who come up against a coalition of four Mesopotamian. Think about Mesopotamia, right? All of the major empires of the ancient world, Assyria, Babylon, Persia. I mean, this is Mesopotamia. Abram takes his little group and go, you want to talk about facing the giants. This is what he does. Amazing courage. I think there's, some, there's a word here, I think, for us. Sometimes you got to go to war for your family. Amen. Can I take just a little side street here and just say sometimes there, there's a, a culture that is trying to take your family captive and it is overwhelming I think Abram models for us, sometimes you've got to saddle up and go to war on behalf of your family. Mom and dad, you, you take encouragement from this. Look to the life of Abram who sees his nephew, Lot, who's taken captive by these worldly forces and is willing to risk it all to go get him back. Mom and dad, you keep fighting that fight for your kids. Amen? You, don't, you take courage. Uh, and you, you go to war for, the, for your family. Abram is a great model of that. But the big point of this story is not just the amazing grace that's here and the amazing courage that he displays, but it's, it's the amazing victory that you see here. I mean, Abram and his men chased these kings all the way to Dan, conduct a surprise attack at night, and finally defeat them, and then drive them north of Damascus all the way out of the land. They drive them out of their land and then out of the land that is north of their land amazing victory. It is a complete victory. And then they come back with the spoils of war, all of the possessions and all of the people, and they come back in this great uh, 
triumph parade, this great victory march back into the land. This is a complete victory. Finally, someone has put a stop to these thugs from the north. Finally, someone was able to defeat this overwhelming coalition of four armies. And it comes from the most surprising place imaginable, the least impressive army of the entire lot, a group of 318 men. This is not only a complete victory, it's a shocking victory. It's impossible, really. I mean, they're at a significant disadvantage, a significant disadvantage. The, The odds are stacked against Abram and his little band. But here in the story, the little guy wins. How can this happen? Here's how. The Lord was with Abram. You see, the only way he could get this victory, it wasn't going to be with military might. It wasn't going to be because he had giants in his tribe. It wasn't going to be because he had a coalition of armies. They had tried all of that. The Rephaim and the coalition from the south, they had tried everything to stop this force. The only difference between all of those other tribes and Abram's family is that the Lord handed Abram the battle. The Lord was the source of Abram's victory. The Lord was with Abram, and that made all the difference in the conflict. That's, that's what the victory is attributed to in verse 20. Blessed be God most high who has handed over your enemies to you. Who won the victory? Was it Abram and this little band of 318 farmers? No. God handed the victory over to Abram. And folks, this is what God is in the business of doing. It doesn't matter how overwhelming the odds that you face. It doesn't matter the size of your strength or the size of your resources or the size of your army. If the Lord is on your side, then victory is assured. Abram here, we, we see this is a, a small group of 300 that wins an overwhelming, against an overwhelming force. This is going to happen later with Gideon and 300. Another miraculous victory where God hands the battle to Gideon. It's going to happen with a, a little shepherd boy who comes against the greatest warrior that the Philistines had ever known, Goliath. And David is going to have a victory over Goliath. Why? Because the Lord hands him the battle. Isn't this what happens in the death and resurrection of Jesus? Jesus, facing overwhelming odds, stands alone against all the forces of the Roman and the Jewish leadership. They throw everything that they can at Jesus, death itself. And Jesus entrusts himself to the Father who gives him the victory in the resurrection. And in the face of overwhelming odds, death itself, Jesus experiences the victory in the resurrection. You see this from beginning to end in the Bible, don't you? Think about all the stories in the the New Testament of the early church where you have uh, preachers of the gospel who are thrown into prison because they've been preaching about Jesus and miraculously guards will be struck blind and prison bars will be blown open and angels will appear and it doesn't matter How strong the forces that come against the people of God, God gives them the victory. I love the passage in the Gospel of Matthew, you know, when Jesus is dead and buried and uh, Pilate tells the soldiers, you know, go make the tomb as secure as you can. (laughs) I try your best. It's no match for the power of God. If the Lord is on your side, it doesn't matter what kind of force you stand against, the Lord will give you the victory. Amen? 
Think about the Apostle Paul when he, he writes in 2 Timothy and he says, at my first defense, speaking of being on trial, no one stood with me, but the Lord stood with me. The Lord stood with me. Listen, you might have a situation in your life where you are, you are out on a limb by yourself. You are standing alone against an overwhelming force. But if the Lord is standing with you, the Lord will give you the victory. Right? We sing that great song in the church. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. How about this? Faith in the victory that overcomes the world. Jesus gives us the victory. And if Jesus is on your side, if the Lord is on your side, then no battle is too big for him. Think, think about it. if you fast forward all the way to the end of the book, you read the book of Revelation, and you see this, this uh, book that's written to seven churches that are small and puny and tiny in this world's eyes, and they are coming up against the forces of Rome, and the Romans are dominating and oppressing the, these seven churches. But John writes to them and says, if you will endure to the one who conquers, right? To the one who conquers, he repeats it seven times to those seven churches. To the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, he says, one day the kingdoms of this world, be they Babylon or Rome or any other kingdom, one day the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And we're told about the rider on a white horse who, even though the church of Jesus has been persecuted and oppressed by the kingdoms of this world, those kingdoms will fall and the rider on the white horse will return and split the sky and a sword will come out of his mouth and his robe will be dipped in blood and he'll destroy the enemies of God's people and rescue God's children and he will reign forever and ever. And so faith in the victory that overcomes the world, we see a picture of that here in the story of Abram, a underwhelming force against overwhelming odds. And yet Abram received the victory from the Lord. He experienced the truth of Psalm 20 verses six through nine. Look on the screen here says, now I know that the Lord gives victory to his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with mighty victories from his right hand. Some take pride in chariots and others in horses, but we take pride in what? The name of the Lord our God. Look at verse eight. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand firm. Lord, give what? Victory to the king. Robert Murray Mishane, the great Scottish theologian, he said, listen, if, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. The victory comes from the Lord. If you knew that victory was assured, what kind of boldness would that give you in your life? What kind of confidence would that give you to face whatever opposition, whatever conflict, whatever enemy might come against you? If God is for us, who can be against us? The answer, nothing, <laughs> no one. So Abram experiences this. He experiences victory from God. He understands now that if he is armed with God's resources, then no amount of human resources can defeat us. What a deeply satisfying truth, amen? He experienced victory from God. But there's a second thing, and I'm out of time. There's a second thing that Abram experienced. So I'm just going to have to touch on this. And not only did he experience victory from God, he also experienced blessing from God. Blessing from God, okay? What happens after the battle? Well, two kings 
come to meet Abram as he's coming back. Remember, he's driven all these armies out of, even out of Syria. Now he begins to come in this great victory parade, bringing a procession of goods and people, possessions, all of this back into the land. And out come two kings. And both of them bring something to Abram. One comes to bring a blessing. The other comes to bring a bargain. I want you to see these two kings here in verses 17 and following. I'm just going to have an opportunity to touch on this, but I don't want you to miss this because this is really where the whole story is driving. After Abram returned from defeating Cater Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Shaveh Valley. That is the king's valley. Okay, so that's king number one, the king of Sodom. And then Melchizedek, verse 18, the king of Salem, that's king number two brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God most high. And he blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tithe, a tenth of everything. Okay, two kings, the king of Salem and the king of Sodom come to meet Abram as he comes back into the land. Now, we don't know a lot about these two kings, but we do know a little bit. The king of Salem, let's start with him. This is the first king. He, he comes to Abram. We're told his name is Melchizedek. Melchizedek, uh, that name means king of righteousness. We're told that he's the king of Salem. Now, you say, where in the world is Salem? It is Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. So he is the king of the city of peace. That's what Salem means, shalom in Hebrew. So he's a king of peace. He's a king of righteousness. He's the king over the city of Jerusalem. We also know that he's not just a king. The text tells us he's also a priest. So he's a unique individual. He's both a king and a priest. Now, in Israel's history, mostly you just have kings or you have priests. But here's an individual who's both king and priest. There are only two people in the Old Testament who ever are both kings and priests. Melchizedek is one. The other is David. David functions as a king and a priest. And David actually makes mention of Melchizedek. In Psalm 110, David says that one day there is going to come another who is like Melchizedek, both a priest and a king. Now, who might that be? Jesus. Jesus is described in the book of Hebrews as being like Melchizedek in that he was both a king and a priest. So we don't know a lot about Melchizedek. He's kind of a shadowy figure in the Old Testament, but we do know that in some way he's a shadow of our priest king to come, Jesus. And he comes out to Abram and he, he does a couple things. First of all, he brings him a meal. Uh, he's a source of refreshment for Abram. So he doesn't come looking for anything. He comes bringing something to Abram. He brings out bread and wine. So interesting. To celebrate a victory, he, he celebrates with bread and wine. Now, some people say that this might be why Jesus, anticipating his victory at the cross with his disciples, celebrates with what? Bread and wine. Bread and wine to celebrate a victory. It might be rooted all the way back here in Genesis chapter 14. But not only is he a source of refreshing, he brings this meal, they celebrate the victory, he's also a source of blessing for Abram. He says, blessed be Abram, and blessed be God most high, who has handed your enemies over to you. I wish there was time for me to really squeeze everything out of this verse that I could. But I just want you to notice here that this is a fulfillment of Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, where God promises to bring blessing to Abram here through a king priest. A kingly priest stands on behalf of God to bring blessing to Abram. 
a fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12. And he says, Abram, you are blessed by the God of heaven and earth. You see, Abram was not only armed with victory from God, he was also armed with blessing from God. He understood the true source of blessing. And if you understand the true source of blessing, you don't need the blessing of this world. If you understand where true blessing really comes, you don't need the acclaim and the fame of this world. And here, Abram was a recipient of a blessing from God through Melchizedek, this king of Salem. Now, that sets him up to be ready for the second king. The second king comes out to him as well, the king of Sodom. Now, we know almost nothing about the king of Sodom other than the fact that he was the ruler of a city that was so wicked that God, in just a few chapters, is going to totally wipe it off the map. And we also know something about this king's character by looking at what he brings to Abram. Melchizedek brings blessing. The king of Sodom brings a bargain. He brings an offer, a seducing, tempting enticement to Abram. Look at what he says in verse 21. It says, Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people, but take the possessions for yourself. In Hebrew, it's just six words. Give me people. You take possessions. It's very gruff. It's interesting contrast with Melchizedek. Melchizedek's first word is a word of blessing. Blessed. The king of Sodom's first word, give. And he's not participated in the war other than just to be beaten. <laughs> but when Abram drives these guys out, Sodom is, king of Sodom is nowhere around. I mean, the last time we found him, he had fallen into an asphalt pit and then fled up into the mountains. But now that Abram's won the victory, the king of Sodom comes out with a deal, a bargain. One king, Melchizedek, <clears throat> comes to Abram to bring refreshment. This king is only interested in ransacking the spoils of war. One king brings the blessing, the other king comes to barter, and here's his offer. Abram, you give me the people, and I'll give you all the possessions. Th this offer is a temptation, an enticement, a seduction, a test of Abram's faith. Abram, I offer you a deal. If you'll give me the people, Lot, his family, all the people from Sodom, give them all back to me, the king of Sodom says. And in exchange, you'll become very wealthy. You just give me the people, and I'll make you rich. Now, that offer, the people for the possessions, was something that had been offered to Abram once before. Anybody remember when it happened? Genesis 12. Another king, the king of Pharaoh, had made a similar devilish deal with Abram. You give me your people, I'll give you possessions. And that's exactly what Abram did, right? He gives his people Sarah. And what does he get? Possessions, herds and flocks and servants. He makes a deal with the devil and he profits off of it. He gives up his people, he gets possessions. Now, a second foreign king makes the same offer to Abram. You give me your people, I'll give you the possessions. But folks, this is a place of vulnerability for Abram. We know that this is a, a weakness for Abram. Abram previously had sought 
self-preservation and self-protection and self-enrichment. This is a point of vulnerability in his life. And now this king of Sodom comes and tempts him where he is given into temptation before. Give me the people. You'll get rich. You'll get all of this worldly wealth if you'll just give me the people. And folks, this should tell us that Satan often hits us where we've failed before. It's one of Satan's devious strategies to attack us where we have shown weakness. To say, oh, I know this is where you're vulnerable. I know this is your point of temptation. I know you've given in here before. I'm going to come and make you the same kind of offer. That's what's happening here, a seduction. This is also, by the way, what someone has called a test of success. This is a test that comes after the victory. And that's often how Satan operates. We experience a great victory in our life, and then boom, Satan tempts us with something. Here's, the, here's an offer. Here's a temptation. Here's a seduction. That's what happens with Abram. He's won the victory. Now, how will he handle success? What will he do? How will he respond in the aftermath of this victory? Will he take the enticing bait once more, just like he did in chapter 12? Will he give in to the seductive answer? Well, let's look at Abram's response. I'm out of time. Verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread from you, king of Sodom. I won't take a sandal strap. I won't take anything that belongs to you so that you can never say, I made Abram rich. Now, Pharaoh could say that, but Abram knew where that road led. Pharaoh could say, hey, look, Abram compromised with me. I made Abram rich. But Abram has learned his lesson now. Not again, never again. Not today, Satan, right? King of Sodom, I, I'm not going to let you be able to say that you made me rich. And therefore, I won't take a piece of pocket lint from you. I won't take a shoestring from this wicked king. Here, Abram says no. He says no to the seductions of this world. He says no to the tempting enticement that this worldly, wicked king has to offer him. He says, I will take, verse 24, nothing except what the servants have eaten. As for the share of the men who came with me, Anner and Eshcol and Mamre, etc., they can take their share. But I, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Abram decides to stand on conviction instead of compromise. Think about if he had compromised in this moment. Here he's just achieved a spiritual victory, a military victory, but that would have been instantly ruined if he had entered into a, a compromising entanglement with the king of Sodom. All the complications that Lot had experienced, Abram would then experience if he entangled himself with this wicked kingdom. This military victory would have given way to spiritual defeat. And Abram says, no, not again. I am so trusting God that I will not be made rich by a wicked king. I'm so satisfied in God. He's experienced victory from God. He knows if you've got God on your side, it doesn't matter what kind of resources you've got from a human perspective. He knows that he's got blessing from God. And if you've got blessing from God, you don't need the blessing of this world. And armed with victory and blessing, he says no to this seductive offer. How could he say it? How could he say no to this? I mean, the opportunity to be wealthy and get all these possessions, if you just make a small compromise, just give the people back. The key is in verse 22. Did you notice the, the statement? 
I've raised my hand in oath to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth. Here's the key to the whole text. The word creator in Hebrew is the word kanach in Hebrew. It means possessor, possessor. Here's what Abram says to, me, to the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom says, you can have all the possessions of this world. Just give me the people. Abram says to him, possessions? No, I worship the God who possesses it all. I serve the God who is the possessor of everything in the heavens and everything on the earth. Why would I make a compromise in order to get your measly possessions? If you can trust God to possess it all, you don't need the possessions of this world. If you can be deeply satisfied in what you have in Christ, then the enticements and seductions of this world will not tempt you. You will look at that and say, why would I take your possessions? I serve the possessor of it all. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. And when you realize what you have in Jesus and you are supremely satisfied in him, you can say, as that gospel writer said, you can have all this world. Give me Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's bow. Jesus, help us to treasure you above all else. Help us to be satisfied deeply in you so that we can look at what the world offers us and say no. Help us to be people of conviction rather than compromise. Help us to be people who are deeply satisfied in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.